0: Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast
2: about archaeology,
1: anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna.
2: And I'm Amber. And Spooktober rolls on. Last week, we discussed the very tangible topic of hands. But this week, we move on to something decidedly less corporeal. Ooh. Well, before we get too spectral, we have a review to
1: read and a new patron to welcome. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Christine, for your Patreon pledge. Everything we get from Patreon from folks like Christine goes right back into making content for you, our listeners. So if you'd like to support the show with a small monthly amount, you can do that at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And if you're not able to do that, please don't worry. You can also support us by telling folks to subscribe to our show and by leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're taking care of yourselves, friends. And speaking of reviews, here is one from Von Von Cake. I listen to some podcasts to be entertained. I listen to others to learn something new. The Dirt has it all. Ah! I'm fairly widely read and I still learn something every episode. I laugh every episode because Amber and Anna are so funny. Ah! It's really an all-in-one podcast and you're missing out if you're not listening. But but, but how would you know? It's like an aching. An undefinable yearning. It's very <laughs> metaphysical. Moving on. Le spook. Donnez-moi le spook. I think we're probably on informal terms. Right? I would,
2: okay. I can tutoyer you. Okay. Niche French joke. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So, Anna, mm. um, I think because we are so familiar, I think I know the answer to this question. <laughs> but humor me. Um, are you a fan of horror films? I am not. Okay. So the script says, even if you're not, (laughs) I, yeah, I
1: have, I have bonkers nightmares all the time enough. I don't need to fuel them.
2: Yeah. So, but just to confirm, Mm -hmm. have you seen The Shining? Uh, I am aware of the plot of The Shining. I have not seen it. Okay. Um, Have you
1: seen the Amityville horror? In the same way I am in, in like a cultural touchstone
2: kind of way. I vaguely know about it. Um, Hot take it's not great the original one it's not great uh, like didn't miss like much a... Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Mm. um have you seen pet cemetery they spelled it wrong so i
1: rejected on principle <laughs> no i haven't seen it but <laughs> again I, I yeah
2: that yeah. went yeah um again it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> now i i know lots of people are fans of stephen king yeah sure who is originally responsible for two of those three movies. Um, he did hate Stanley Kubrick's um, film version of The Shining. Interesting. Which um, yes. says something.
1: Yeah, I would argue without having seen any of them that it's the best of those three.
2: Yeah, it's it's like I, I like Stanley Kubrick's movies. The things that I found to be weak about The Shining are things that I know to be hallmarks of Stephen King's work.
1: Now tell us what, what you think about Stephen King.
2: i have have some notes um (laughs) but but so i picked those three examples specifically um and do you know what they all have in common am i supposed to say no no? i can just
1: (laughs) i do but go ahead
2: okay Okay, great (laughs) that one was a rhetorical question i know i'm gonna set you up with (laughs) so yeah in each of these classic horror films as well as many others throughout the 1980s and beyond um They all feature haunted spaces that generate and inspire heinous acts. And at the root of these hauntings is the disturbance of Native American burial grounds. So... In the past 30 years, uh, the so-called, longer, oh my gosh, 40, Um, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) the so-called Indian burial ground trope, and a trope is a cliche or a motif that literary or film works can lean on as sort of a creative crutch, um, has really come into its own in the United States. Anna, question? (laughs) I was raising my hand.
1: Do you know where the word cliche comes from? Please tell me. It's onomatopoeia. So a cliche is something that it has been repeated so often that it's sort of like, yes, yes, yes. Um, Cliche in in French is an onomatopoeic word for the kind of squishing noise that an ink press made, like a a printing press made as the ink separated from the paper. Cliche.
2: Oh, that's fun. Yeah,
1: I I really like that one, which is why I I apologize for interrupting, but I hope to make it up
2: with fact Oh, that one's good. Thank you. Um, Not that others are bad, but that one's good. Nice. Um, (laughs) So uh, what's behind this cliche? We're not going to talk about whether ghosts are real or what reasons people have for believing in them. There are plenty of other podcasts for that. Um, Instead, let's talk about why Americans, so those settler who, Americans. Yes. Like settler colonist Americans landed mm-hmm. on Native Americans being the ones haunting our houses and hotels and house cats.
1: Is that last one? Is that a pet cemetery
2: reference? Um yeah. So is the there cat a comes back. Oh, no. no, the cat so in Pet Cemetery, they um Nope, at no point elsewhere did I say what happens in Pet Cemetery. So Pet Cemetery is about a family that moves to Maine. Yeah. Right what you <laughs> know. Um and so they moved to Maine and there is a road that goes in front of their house that has like a lot of trucks that go through. Um oh, no. and so cat. there is a pet cemetery that the children made and that's why it's spelled incorrectly. Oh, um, now I feel to, bad for being to, a pedant. To bury the, like their pets that have been hit by the, the trucks. trucks, understood. Now the early on the cat gets hit by the by the truck. That makes me very and, sad. And then they bury it. Well, they, they go beyond the pet cemetery to the, what they, they say is like the Very place open. beyond. And so okay. it's a a like magical place where it comes back to life, but it's not right. So the cat comes back and the cat just like the cat reminds me a lot of like my neighbor's cat Spice growing up, who like oh. looks like this cat and also was like rude AF. <laughs> and so like Spice? But then, Spice, because there also was sugar. Oh, but because Spice was a dark kitty cute like kind of a peppery kitty oh. and sugar was a white kitty gotcha um yeah, yeah. but um yeah he's, he's peeing in God's shoes now <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry uh-huh.
1: that was my that tangent was my fault please continue
2: sort of what happens in pet cemetery is their toddler is hit oh god by a truck and then he because he's like bereft so he buries because again it's stephen king so there has to be a dead kid and a car, a, a car accident. This is something else that has to happen. Right. What sleeping. you know, it's, it's obligatory. Um, and so they bury the kid in this, in the beyond like place, unholy, um, like ground. And so then the kid comes back, but is not comes, right. comes back. I know. I'll play with me. And just like, he's Oh, okay. so Ooh, right. spooky. So that's what happens in pet cemetery. So right. yeah. Now so, you don't have to watch it. You're welcome. Yeah, you, you don't have to. So, Houses and hotels and house cats. Mm-hmm. So within ten years of the Amityville Horror, the Indian Burial Ground, abbreviated as IBG, uh, became kind of played out as a horror device and became kind of a joke—the go-to cheesy horror reference that creators can cleverly invoke. Um, it came. It comes up. It, it comes up in like Buffy. It comes up in Parks and Recreation. Like it came up in The Simpsons. It just sort of like as like kind of hokey. Um, but far beyond major movies and best-selling novels, the trope has wormed its way into the public consciousness and serves as the backdrop for personal ghost stories that people call into shows to tell and then I listen to um, or over the table at potlucks that I have personally attended back home. This is something that I've thought about often. And while I do like thinking about hauntings and the haunted, what's always stuck with me is how folks in the U.S. can be like, oh, yeah, it's built on a Native American cemetery as if, A, that's not completely whack to just like casually mention it. And B, there's no thought given to like the genocide and like what actually had to happen between an indigenous community burying their dead somewhere and your suburb being on it. It's just sort of like glossing over like everything that happened in the middle. Um, obviously, I'm not the first person to have thought about this. Uh, and I'm certainly not like the smartest or most eloquent person to have written about this. So let's talk about some writers and historians and, and what they have to say about it. But first, Anna, mm. would you please read us a poem? yes. In
1: spite of all the learned have said, I still my old opinion keep. The posture that we give the dead points out the soul's eternal sleep. Not so the ancients of these lands, the Indian, when from life released, again is seated with his friends and shares again the joyous feast. His imaged birds and painted bowl and venison for journey dressed bespeak the nature of the soul, activity that knows no rest. His bow, for action ready-bent and arrows with a head of stone, can only mean that life is spent, and not the old ideas gone. Thou stranger that shalt come this way, no fraud upon the dead commit. Observe the swelling turf and say, they do not lie, but here they sit. Here still a lofty rock remains on which the curious eye may trace, now wasted half by wearing reins, the fancies of a ruder race." Here still an aged elm aspires, beneath whose far-projecting shade, and which the shepherd still admires, the children of the forest played. There oft a restless Indian queen, pale sheba with her braided hair, and many a barbarous form is seen to chide the man that lingers there. By midnight moons, or moistening dews, in habit for the chase arrayed, the hunter still the deer pursues, the hunter and the deer a-shade. And long shall timorous fancy see the painted chief and pointed spear, and reason's self shall bow the knee to shadows and delusions here. There was a lot about that that I did not like. Yeah. <laughs> so that poem, The Indian Burying Ground, was written, as you might have been able to tell by the subject matter and the language used, uh, it was written in 1787 by Philip Freneau, an American poet, sometimes described as the poet of the American Revolution. Oh. Some, might, some might say <laughs> that the Anglo-American preoccupation with sacred native lands began with Jay Anson's book, The Amityville Horror. But Freneau's work suggests it had already been peaked two centuries earlier. Anson wrote what he described as a true story, which isn't inaccurate in that it's the true story of a group of people that concocted a lie and later confessed to it. The true story of the Amityville Horror is that in the house in question, a young man murdered his entire family in 1974, the house was sold, and then a couple named George and Kathleen Lutz moved in. As historian Colin Dickey writes in Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places, According to Anson, while George and Kathleen Letts were trying to find out why their new home was so haunted, a member of the Amityville Historical Society revealed to them that the site of their home had once been used by the Shinnecock Indians as, subquote, an enclosure for the sick, mad, and dying. These unfortunates were penned up until they died of exposure, end quote. Anson further claimed that, quote, the Shinnecock did not use this tract as a consecrated burial mound because they believed it to be infested with demons, end quote. But when paranormal researcher Hans Holzer and psychic medium Ethel Johnson Myers investigated the Amityville house, Johnson Myers channeled the spirit of a Shinnecock Indian chief who told her the house stood on an ancient Indian burial ground. None of this has held up under any kind of scrutiny. The Shinnecock lived some 50 miles from Amityville, and according to writer Rick Osuna, who spent years unearthing the facts about Amityville, the
2: nearest which is which sorry which is um on Long Island in New York State. Okay, thank you. That's just to let folks know.
1: Uh, the nearest human remains that have been found to date are over a mile from the house. Nor would the Shinnecock or any other native people have treated their sick and dying in such a callous, brutal fashion. But then the entire Amityville horror narrative was, it now seems likely, an elaborate hoax. In 1978, the Lutzes sued two clairvoyants and several writers working on alternative histories of the house, alleging invasion of privacy. In the course of the trial, William Weber, Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney, testified that the entire story had been concocted by him and the Lutzes and that he had provided the couple with salient details of the DeFeo murders to substantiate their account, end quote.
2: Yeah, so um, I love this book, Ghostland. Um, I love it, love it, love it. Uh, So there is an excerpt published in The New Republic that I'm including in our show notes, but I highly recommend the book it, the overall book. Dickie is a great writer. And as I texted Anna, you it's did. like having a conversation over a beer with a really smart person you just met. Um, Remember it's, when you could do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so. I, I say that because it's laid back, it's accessible, and it's really fascinating. Um, Dickey uses hauntings in different places all over the United States, including West Virginia, as an entry point to how people have understood life, death, and navigating the two over time. Like major, major, major book club wreck, especially for American listeners. Not because we want to exclude anybody else, but because
1: you might have a sense of where these places are and you might, yeah.
2: Well, and, and it also is something that will make you think differently about mm-hmm. um other aspects of perhaps the place you live or places that you visited um yeah. and so something else about colin dickey is he's part of the order of the good death and we've mentioned people who yeah, are affiliated with have. that a couple times and so the order of the good death is like a it's a nonprofit, and it's like a death acceptance it's a, yeah, association a mortuary. Yeah, yeah and yeah. so they they talk about um that they involve like academics and mortuary professionals, and and they they want to talk about um, death as part of life, and so that um, that kind of perspective comes through in Ghostland too. Of like, this is something that helps us understand the world that we're in and the world that we occupy, and how like our environment and our conditions and like material like circumstances like affect that. Um, so highly recommend, but it sounds great. Yeah. So he has more to say about the reality behind the fiction when he addresses Pet Cemetery, which I very lovingly recapped for you mm-hmm. above uh, saying, quote, at the time the book was published, it was quite topical. As scholar Renee Berglin points out, during the years that King was writing Pet Cemetery, the state of Maine was involved in a massive legal battle against the Maliseet. Penobscot? And Penobscot. Yeah. Penobscot? Yeah, like the Penobscot Bay is up in Maine. Okay. Penobscot yeah. and Passamaquoddy. I got I got no help for you there. I think it's Pass I Passamaquoddy. I don't, know where, the, I don't know where the emphasis goes. Yeah. <laughs> uh Passamaquoddy bands of the Wabanaki Confederacy. Beginning in 1972, the tribe sued Maine and the federal government over lands to which they were, by federal law, entitled, which amounted to 60% of the area of the state. Uh-huh. <laughs> Long inhabited inhabited by non-Native Americans in Maine, the land in dispute was home to over 350,000 people who would have needed resettlement had the tribes been successful. Once it became clear that their claim had merit, the government scrambled to find a settlement that wouldn't involve the displacement of large amounts of non-Indigenous residents, ultimately rewarding the three tribes more than $81 million. Much of that earmarked to purchase undeveloped land in Maine, along with other federal guarantees. All this history lies in the background of King's novel. Early on, Creed, the, the, um, the father, the, okay, protagonist, the, the protagonist. Okay, the protagonist, okay yeah is exploring the wilderness that his is his backyard with his family and his neighbor Judd Crandall um when his wife Rachel exclaims honey do we own this a question that will become fraught as the novel progresses crandall answers answers rachel it's a part of the property oh yes <laughs> that's you uh, trying yeah. to do a, yeah <laughs>
1: that's, that's the only part of a main <laughs> accent that matters the, uh, yeah
2: <laughs> um, though lewis thinks to himself that this is not quite the same thing
1: wait this ten- who's lewis i
2: this- oh, sorry lewis creed yes <laughs> i'm sorry i thought it was his first name like creed from the office <laughs> no 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 um the tension between holding the deed to a piece of property and true ownership of the land continues throughout the book mm, a theme <laughs> A motif mm. um Judd repeatedly invokes the very real land disputes happening in Maine at the time, though in King's book it is the Micmac people fighting for the land in Maine, an odd distortion. the Micmac people were never part of the Wabanaki Confederacy and lived primarily in Canada, not Maine. Wonder why he did that that wasn't sarcasm i I just was like, huh. <laughs> Um, he says at one point quote now the micmacs the state of maine and the government of the united states are arguing in court about who owns that land who does own it no one really knows lewis not at all man i should have been doing the Maine accent not anymore (laughs) different people laid claim to it at one time or another but no claim has ever stuck End quote. Judge stresses that the power of the land predates the former owners, saying, quote, the Mi'kmaqs knew that place, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they made it what it was. The Mi'kmaqs weren't always here. Uh, yeah. The narrative of the haunted burial... In- Haunted Indian burial ground hides a certain anxiety about the land on which Americans, specifically white middle class Americans, live. Embedded deep in the idea of home the holy grail of American middle class life, is the idea that we don't, in fact, own the land that we've just bought. Time and time again, these stories, perfectly average, innocent American families, are confronted by ghosts who have persevered for centuries, who remain vengeful for the damage done. Facing these ghosts and expelling them, in many of these horror stories, becomes a means of Refighting the Indian Wars of past centuries. That is very insightful. I yeah, like so, I really like that. Yeah, so you can read more of the excerpt um, online, but also go I that
1: book. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, discussion of refighting the Indian Wars. And so, for those who don't know, the Indian Wars is a kind of blanket term used to describe the like 400 years of uh, genocide. Yeah, of like military military action taken against uh, Native groups in what is the now the U.S. and Canada. Um, but talking about that is very relevant to something that Sharonda J. Brown wrote for Wear Your Voice magazine a couple of years ago when the movie um, Winchester, The House That Ghosts Built, um, starring Dame Helen Mirren, came out. Huh. Um, if you're not... Uh, are, are that's you
1: familiar? That's a movie I missed, um, but I am familiar yeah. with The Winchester House.
2: Okay. Well, are you familiar with um, Sharonda J. Brown? No. Okay. So if you're not, like Anna, listener, um, <laughs> and you're enjoying this subject so far, I cannot recommend highly enough that you seek their writing out. Um, Brown writes a lot about uh, media and culture through the lens of black feminism. Mm. Um, so they have some like really great essays about um, sort of like... Like monstrosity and like blackness and and things that oh, come up in okay. like horror and sci-fi. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, yeah. So in um, where your voice, the the essay Winchester continues Hollywood's tradition of mining Native American suffering for ghost stories. I mean, that gets right to the point. Yep. Uh, Brown points out that in Winchester, the house that ghosts built, um, the owner of the Winchester Mystery House, which is in San Jose, California, right outside of San Jose, California, um, was plagued by the ghosts of those who died at the end of the Winchester rifle for which her family was responsible. So, like, it's the eponymous Winchester. Yeah. Um, And so the Winchester rifle is known as the gun that won the West. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. So Brown says, quote, with this feature, Hollywood continues the tradition of sensationalizing and distorting the reality of Native American suffering in order to tell horror stories that center white characters. Um, this is The same is true of narratives with black ghosts that use racialized U.S. chattel slavery and antebellum violences. Rarely are the lives or deaths of black and native people explored in horror films unless they are done so in this way. These racialized violences are used as nothing more than plot devices rather than as a means to interrogate and condemn the white supremacy and colonialism that necessitates them. End quote. Hmm. See also, Stephen King. They go on to cite native writer Terry Jean, author of the essay, Another Indian Burial Ground, Please. Um, So (laughs) that was the intonation was good. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, because it ends with an ellipsis. (laughs) Um, So try as I might, I cannot find a working link to the full essay. It seems to have been published, um, if not published, definitely made available in a Yahoo group. Oh, okay, And so so I. I can't. Vaguely access restricted, it. but Yeah. So um, if anybody does have a copy or because everywhere I've seen that that cites it links to that Yahoo page. And, and so, you and you can't get to it. Yeah. And it might not exist anymore. If you do have a copy of it, please send it to us. The Dirt we went, podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. So I will, however, read Brown's quote from it, which I've seen else. I've seen other people you quote this passage. Mm-hmm. Um, so brown contextualizes it saying in this piece uh, a gene prevent presents five theories about why it had persisted for so many years including the quote bad indian and quote stereotype that reifies the quote savage mythos and the white fear of perceived native american mysticism lastly there is theory five so she's she's got like her, and, now, her, and now and now now it's quoting this, yeah so yeah. there are there are four others and then the big <laughs> one is theory five okay um This is quoting from Terry Jean, or perhaps Terry Jean. I'm not sure.
1: Je ne sais pas.
2: Quote, karma and guilt. Americans know that atrocities were committed and hundreds of nations were obliterated or nearly obliterated. Retribution is feared, and some people may believe that the ghosts of those who died due to this nation's invasion and European takeover will someday come back to get their revenge. End quote. Yeah. And so when we come back from the break... Anna's going to tell us about some other contemporary native voices who have weighed in on the IBG, the Indian burial ground trope and its impact. need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu APN today. We're
1: back. Writer and comedian Jana Schmiding tackles the IBG in a medium essay, which is to say an essay on the site medium, not referring to its length, Bury My Guilt in an Indian Burial Ground, which she penned after subjecting herself to a couple episodes of the Netflix series, Haunted. <laughs> the full article is linked in the show notes, and we highly recommend you read it because she's both funny and informative. Ah, our favorite combination. Yeah. <laughs> and in it, she says, quote, Wow, this is a long quote.
2: It's great. <laughs> no, I'm yeah, I'm excited, but whoa. I know it is like a paragraph, and I, but it's also like a, a chunk of text, but it's yeah. great.
1: Yeah. Here we go. Quote. In the case of the Indian burial ground trope, the threat of hauntings from pissed off Native American ghosts works to victimize white homeowners to spook the settler colonial guilt right out of them. Sometimes with the helpful prayers and sage burning, see our episode on warding off evil, of a white psychic medium, Parentheses I roll, close parentheses. When I see the IBG trope used, it brings me back to the image of white settlers in the era of Manifest Destiny and in Westerns. These hapless victims are depicted as frightened families, vulnerable to the untamed landscape and swarms of wild savages ever encroaching on their rightful homesteads. And so are the terrified homeowners of the 1970s and 80s horror flicks invaded by an evil unknown. Could it be that this pristine new property we just acquired is tainted by vexed spirits of those who came before? There was definitely a prevalent level of white guilt relative to Native issues at this time. As an urban Native child of the 1980s, I think back upon the ways in which the small community of intertribal Indigenous people living off of reservations in Oregon were together going through the process of post-AIM community organizing with an emphasis on traditional practices and education— Post AIM, post American Indian movement.
2: There was a, it was a, a civil rights movement. Oh, they, yeah, so, that's, um,
1: yeah, that group took over Alcatraz. That's a really mm-hmm. cool story. Yeah, um, my own grandparents and parents worked very diligently within their local governments and the school districts to educate the populace about Native existence and ways of life. All oh the god. while,
2: I thought you were still like, t- and I was like, oh my god, they did, and then I was like, no, you're reading. It's <laughs> just like what.
1: <laughs> uh, but no, my, my parents and grandparents are great, but they did not do this. Uh, all the while raising their family to speak proudly about our heritage. Yeah, not my heritage. <laughs> I do not claim anything of that nature. And to embody the values and traditions of our indig- indigeneity. They battled the yearly onslaught of pilgrim Indian pageants at our schools, all with an understanding that reservation living still came with exceptional disadvantages, the removal of a people from their land proving to be an injustice that haunted one generation after another. Indeed, one of the most baffling parts of the Indian burial ground philosophy in TV and film is the ridiculous way in which the haunting manifests. It never appears as the ghost of an actual native person. Can you imagine? No, writers would never take it that far. It almost always appears as a poltergeist, a psychotic break, or a possession. For the sake of research, I continued to watch episode 2 of Haunted, and spoiler alert, the storyteller regales us with disturbing accounts of her father, a psychopath and serial murderer, being possessed with what she believes to be a demonic spirit. The Indian burial ground doesn't even come up again in the episode. Are we to believe, then, that the literal foundation of this woman's childhood home in rural upstate New York disturbed the ancient Onondaga or the Oneida spirits so much that they took time away from ancestoring to devilishly possess this already disturbed man, taking the form of what is very clearly a demon from Roman Catholic lore? Whatever, I'm confused. All I know, from the point... A view of one Lakota native who enjoyed The Shining as much as you did, but with one eyebrow raised, is that the only ghost stories I've ever heard from my own people are that of ancestors who carry wisdom, who aim to protect, who are considered sacred and powerful, and whose manifestations as malevolent only occur when they're not talked about. When their story isn't told. There's a moral here that I hope you're grasping. When someone tells you that their house is built on an Indian burial ground and it makes the hair stand up on your arms, ask yourself, what am I really afraid of? Am I afraid of indigenous people because of pop culture's portrayal of them as unholy spurned beasts of the underworld? Or am I afraid of my own willful ignorance of settler colonialism and modern native issues? Am I afraid that native stories haven't actually been told? I'll go ahead and assume it's a mix of all. But until Native filmmakers and television writers get a chance to scare the shit out of mainstream audiences with our own stories, we're all stuck with supernatural microaggressions and embarrassingly coded displays of white guilt. End quote. This extends beyond stories of just hauntings, as comes through in the following excerpts from Horror Older Than America, Whitewashing Native Tales for a Mass Market Audience by T.J. Tranchel for Northwest Public Broadcasting. Quote, Monster stories may hold very different associations in native stories, end quote, said Tiffany Midge, a Moscow-Idaho poet and Standing Rock Sioux member. Quote, in some traditions, the different monsters are deities, but there's certainly a great many so-called horror elements to a great many different native legends. But imposing Western interpretations on them flattens and diminishes them to some extent, end quote. Even Stephen King, perhaps the most mainstream writer of horror fiction, used the desecration of sacred lands and the subsequent burial ground cliche as the site of the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, and as the place Lewis Creed there there's the first name <laughs> as the place Lewis Creed buries his son Gage in Pet Cemetery. But in the later book, King added another native based aspect, the Wendigo, which we talked about last year for Spooktober. Oh wait, was that year one or was that last year?
2: I think it was year one. I think it was our first year. That was the first time that I was like, I'm going to tell a scary story. And then I'm like, oh, Oh, no,
1: no. (laughs) the spook isn't what I thought it was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wendigo stories appear in several places throughout North America and are often warnings against cannibalism. In some stories, the Wendigo is even responsible for wiping out the Donner Party in 1846 as they were stranded in the Sierra Nevada mountains and resorted to eating the flesh of their dead. The relationship between flesh-eating monsters and natives has recently taken on a new aspect. In comparing attitudes seen in the show The Walking Dead and attitudes toward the native experience, scholar Kutcher reisling Baldi asked the question, Can we come back from this? In her 2014 article, Why I Teach the Walking Dead in My Native Studies Class. Oh, let me take that class. She compares the zombie apocalypse scenario to the real-world realities faced by indigenous people during the California Gold Rush and Indian hunting sessions. Oh, yikes. And she wrote, quote, what those who survived experienced was both the apocalypse and post-apocalypse. It was nothing short of zombies running around trying to kill them. End quote. Like the zombie hordes of the Walking Dead, Riesling Baldy points out that the people trying to kill natives and desecrate their lands weren't necessarily strangers. She writes, quote, The atrocities of genocide during this period of time were not committed by monsters. They were committed by people, by neighbors, by fathers, sons, mothers, and daughters. End quote. Riesling Baldi is one of a handful of Native scholars and artists approaching the horror genre. Writers such as Stephen Graham Jones and Owl Going Back are from Native backgrounds and have used the stories to influence their work. While not a horror writer, Midge also has an interest in the genre, saying, quote, I can't 100% say that these movies are based on any actual stories originating in Native communities, but they totally capture a lot of the general idea with regards to ghosts and visitations, quote. And Midge cites the films Imprint and Older Than America as Native-driven and produced films that deal not only with horror tropes, but also the realities of Native issues such as life on reservations and the history of boarding school traumas. Knowing how these stories entered Western thought and then into the tales of horror is important, too. And she writes, quote, If you visit the Smithsonian American Indian Museum, there's a room of moccasins on display. They're art, beauty, celebratory relics from the 19th century. Where'd they originate, though? I see it as funeral and objects of genocide. But of course, they're not displayed as such, End quote. Comparing the atrocities and monsters of different people and times remains a complicated topic, Mitch said quote, and then if one visits the Holocaust Museum in D.C., there's this huge plexiglass box structure full of shoes taken from the concentration camps. That message is 100% clear, Midge says. It's such a disparate portrait, isn't it? That really is, and it's yeah. something that I've never thought about, but that's a, a gut punch of an image. Yeah. So let's let's take one more break, and then when we're back, we will wrap up with some final examples of indigenous stories on the screen.
0: Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to artpodnetcom slash shop and click the link to our tea Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.artpodnet.com forward slash shop for some Archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timeular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timeular is an app and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So, support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timemuller. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes, so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping.
2: All right, we're back. And I know this week is like kind of dense. It's like very heady. It's a heady topic. Um, but I can't I just I can't help but like go along with this. No, it's great. This,
1: this is this is really, really interesting stuff. And it yeah. I'm glad we're doing this.
2: Yeah. And so this topic is at the intersection of a few things that I personally love to think about and learn about. Um, And as I was coming up with with Spooktober topics, you know, like for the past four months, um, (laughs) I knew this was something that I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are still two questions that I asked as I prepared the script that I've not touched on yet. Um, And those are, is this just a thing in the Americas? And where might I find some indigenous voices in horror? So it's something that is um, recognized in, mm-hmm. in so it's just, we can say American in the more like general sense. Like, so it's in like the Americas, yeah, yeah. like this idea of, of like. Disturbing sacred, sacred ground. And... Sacred, then become like desecrated yes. lands that haunts you. And so I was trying to think of examples of like where else this might be a case? Like, is this something that that we've exported? And so, something that Very I found um, when I was looking is I found a movie from 1988. Hmm. It's an Australian movie, and it's called Kadaicha, which we have talked about. We have Kadaicha before. I remember, I remember. another spooked over. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so the alternate, like the alternative name. Why did I say it like that? The alternative. <laughs> the <laughs> alternative name. Yeah. Um, so it's also it was also marketed as, I think, stones of death because I guess Kadacha like didn't have a lot of like currency for for folks like outside of Australia. Um, yeah. But mm-hmm. um, you can find it on YouTube. So you don't have to pay anyone to watch it. Um, which like there are times that I want to make sure that like an artist is compensated, but, but also I, I found it on YouTube and it's like this like really cool channel. That's like full of like B movies. Oh, fun. Not B movie, <laughs> but B movies, not the Jerry um, Seinfeld item. Yeah. So, um, it's, so yeah, so Kadaicha is about a. Um, so it's also I think I had texted you about this. So I was like, remember the days when like real estate developers were the villains? <laughs>
1: like, he did. I thought you were talking about the movie. Now I can't remember what it's called. Never mind that Nathan Lane movie. It's like Mouse Hunt or something. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Where he's like trying to sell this house and a mouse keeps foiling all his plans. Through increasingly elaborate scenarios, and he just like oh, hurts a himself. Is this movie
2: based on the board game? I don't know. trap.
1: I think it might be. Is it
2: Mousetrap? I don't know. I, he gets hurt not. repeatedly in ways
1: that suggest it's based on a board game. This
2: sounds like the game Mousetrap. I think. um I mean, I know I didn't hallucinate this. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. But. Cadillac 1988. So it's a movie about a group of teens that of die. Course. Oh. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's it. That's the movie. Um so it's it's based in so the it takes place in a fictional suburb of Sydney where there is a there was a a sub a planned subdivision uh-huh. and these um these these like, you know, Sexy teens. I don't. I don't know. I'm yeah. Bruce I was assuming what they're and Sheila. Yep. They're all named like Tamson and Bradwin and Lockie. And this is like, it's just. I'm sorry to our Australian listeners, but you do know Tamsons and Lockies. Uh, they are. They have these dreams in which they see shadowy figures and then there's a skull face and then they push a a crystal into their hands and they wake up and there's a Kodichia stone next to them and so like that yeah. is like and so e- the, one by one they are marked for death and so they find out that they fa- find out from the only Aboriginal Australian in the movie who like oh, man what's his name? Steve something but he had like a 70 year career like an like an insane yeah film a career. career of being the only <laughs> aboriginal australian in I did get white that people sense. movies i did get that sense but also he was in some like iconic australian oh, that's good. films he warns so the smart girl like the, the you know the final girl, one um goes and like he like confronts her and um she goes to her dad and was like you didn't tell me that it was it was on a burial ground um and so what it was was this was built on the site of a massacre of young um aboriginal australians and so that's why they're like taking oh, out the teens. the teens i see and and so um i got a quote from the fought, the the real estate villain ah. um take notice of that crowd oh this is when she says like but but there are people that didn't want this to happen and like there were like this massacre you mean no 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 sorry no that like that like there were people who were protesting the construction of the the Mm -hmm. suburb Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, saying that like this was like sacred land sacred land yeah and he says take notice of that crowd and every piece of dirt in this country is a sacred site of some kind which is like a great example of the like them accidentally getting it right Yeah, (laughs) it's like Yes. Yeah, (laughs) it is. But it was really interesting to see a like the like classic Indian burial ground in the Australian context, Mm, which mm -hmm. there are a lot of parallels. (laughs) And so it's um, so it was really interesting to see like like white middle class anxiety about being like on about retribution. Indigenous land. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I'm not saying I recommend it. Um, but also I'm really interested if like, if folks can think of other examples.
1: Yeah. Again, Um, the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. We really do like to hear from listeners.
2: Yeah. And, and so I would also like to hear like other contexts where there would be parallels in this because Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a big part of sort of the, the canon. How many movies did you watch for this episode? I watched a lot of movies for this episode. (laughs) Okay. How many movies have we talked about? (laughs) Fair. (laughs) So if we've got some horror nerds listening, which I think that we do, you probably also love, like I do, that one of the great things about the genre is that it gives the artist a chance to really say something or to push back or to make a scathing critique of some force or entity in real life. A lot of times, whether it's intentional or unintentional, horror says a lot about what we are afraid of. And like how we view ourselves and sort of our discomfort with the world around us. Um, So through horror, we can confront our fears, we can identify villains, and we can explore what might be. So Ariel Smith is a Nehiyah Jewish artist and writer who tackled the subject of horror in indigenous cinema for um, the online magazine Offscreen, opening her essay with, quote, By providing dominant culture audiences with their primary source for visual representation of indigenous peoples, Hollywood narrative cinema has long informed white viewers' notions of the aboriginal other. Arguably, the American Western has produced some of the most obvious examples of pan Indian stereotypes. However, images of Indians created for the benefit of colonial gaze are hyper visual within other types of genre cinema, such as horror films. Specifically, North American horror films belonging to the supernatural subgenre have made frequent use of the popular ancient burial ground convention. In what follows, I will address (laughs) what I see as a paradoxical nature of the burial ground trope and will also also discuss the ways in which indigenous filmmakers such as Jeff Barnaby have used the horror genre to examine the true horrors of colonization and violence against indigenous women's bodies. End quote. So in the rest of this essay, as well as in a few others, I'll include in the show notes, so we don't spend like another hour with me being like, and then and then there's this one, and then there's this person who does this. Um, there are several 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 films and filmmakers who work reframes and responds to colonial violence and kind of re like seizes the narrative and takes control of it again and thanks to ariel smith i am now familiar with the work of jeff barnaby um who she mentions above yeah um and his second movie blood quantum that is a cool title I don't right. know anything about the movie, but it's just so. Really, it's are you cool. familiar with like the concept of blood quantum? Nope. So the so blood quantum deals with the like minimum blood that you have that would that in this case would make you indigenous.
1: Oh, okay. So blood like, in the sense of of heredity.
2: Yeah. Okay. And and blood quantum also is something that applies to like like blackness. And really, what okay. it is is like. Not whiteness. Right. I like yes. it's I, I understand so, the subtext. Yeah. I, yeah. I thought so, it might
1: have something to do with like quantum traveling, but no, different. No, this is mm-hmm. horror, not mm-hmm. sci-fi. I
2: so know. uh Blood Quantum came out this year and it's on Shudder. So um and Shudder is like a streaming service that's like all like horror
1: stuff. Shutter with two uh, D's, not like the thing you put over your windows.
2: Yeah. It's just, <laughs> not yeah yeah, so um and you know if i don't know like shutter is 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 available it's something that is you can stream it and like you can also like if you don't have like cash laying around you can do a trial Mm -hmm. uh, and watch blood quantum um so hey they're not a sponsor go do that trial then click cancel yeah um yeah people on amazon um Highly rated, except for the people who think it's racist against white people. So, huh? It's great. (laughs) You love to see it to get a sense of why they might be feeling this way. uh, Let me read a description of it from the opening of an interview Seventh Row did with Barnaby. They also did um, like a podcast to like talk about his work more. Oh, cool. Yeah, about like his his overall work, not just this one. Can we Um, link to the to that episode on the show notes? Already is. Oh yeah. Um, So. This interview opens with, quote, How do you get young people to watch the films of Canadian Indigenous documentarian Alanis Obamsawin? For Jeff Barnaby, the answer is to hook them with a genre film that works as an alternative history to the one recounted in Obamsawin's films. Shot largely in the Restigouche Reserve, Blood Quantum repeatedly evoke Obamsawin's documentary Incident at Restigouche, nineteen eighty-four, about when settler police invaded the reserve to limit their fishing rights without ever placing limitations on commercial fishing. Appropriately, Blood Quantum opens with a dead fish coming back to life, auguring the zombie apocalypse and hearkening back to this important event in Micmac history. Okay. Micmac,
1: who right. okay. are uh, real uh, people, First
2: Nations group. Yeah, not in Maine. No, they super so, not in Maine. As an indigenous and specifically Mi'kmaq filmmaker, Barnaby's zombie story is filtered through a native perspective. In this film, if you have blood quantum and are thus indigenous, you are immune to zombification. Barnaby's largely indigenous cast of characters are thus not so much afraid of zombies as they are afraid of white people who turn into them and are trying to invade their safe haven. It's a blunt force metaphor for colonialism. They keep coming and coming to destroy you, forever outnumbering you until they eat your brains. But it's a solid and original one. In a way, Blood Quantum allows Barnaby to pose the question, what would have happened at Restigouche if we didn't let white police in? Or perhaps more accurately, if we didn't let the colonizers in centuries ago by making indigenous people immune they're empowered but they still have to face this enormous suffocating force that's a cool approach isn't that awesome like and so like really cool so even if you're not a zombie movie fan, like I'm not a zombie person, like there's something that I like actually am scared of oh, no. uh, or you don't have the tummy for like gory horror. Um, uh-huh. It is important to think about how we create and consume stories that involve other people, especially those who have largely been excluded from the process of that's, filmmaking.
1: That's one of the reasons I'm so glad that you've you've done this, because now I can think
2: about these things
1: without having to watch movies that scare yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, And so in that spirit, I have a second book club recommendation for the week. Clear your schedules, folks. You have a lot of visual media to consume. Um, (laughs) And this one is a a book entitled Reservation Realism, R-E-E-L-I-S-M, Red-Facing Visual Sovereignty and Representations of Native Americans in Film. And that's by uh, Michelle H. Regea. And it's published by the University of Nebraska Press. And so I will use the, I'll have the WorldCat link to that in there. Um, and so that one, if you're not so into the spooky and you just kind of <laughs> come along with me for the, for the month. Um, <laughs> Tip, that's me. Highly <laughs> recommended. Awesome. Thank you for putting this together, bud. It was really, really yeah, good. it was fun. Yeah. I so, mean, not I mean, fun. Not, I mean. Again. This is something that I really enjoy thinking about. Yeah,
1: it was. I don't know the right adjective for it, but uh, I enjoyed the journey. (laughs) And with that, we leave you for another week with something to mull over like your cider as you start your Halloween movie marathons. We will be back in your ears next Monday with more of the season's greetings. And if that's not enough... Check out Spooktobers from years past, which you can find on Apple's podcast, Apple's Apple's podcast, which you can bob for on Apple's podcasts. (laughs) Oh, gosh. If that's not enough, check out (laughs) (laughs) Spooktobers. If that's not enough, check out Spooktobers from years past, which you can find on Apple podcasts, Spotify and anywhere else you like to listen.
2: Yeah. And. As we suggested above. Um, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't. And you might hear it at the top of the show. Uh-huh. And you can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on the Gram, oh God. the IG. You're so insta. Hip. No, I'm not. <laughs> I know. No, I'm not. Um, we are at The Dirt Pod. We are. And if you want to see that all smushed
1: together in one place on the internet, you can head over to thedirtpod.com where you can also find sweet, sweet merch like mugs and pins and shirts and hats. And you can find the button that lets you sponsor an episode on the topic of your choosing
2: Yeah, and more.
1: Thank you, and everyone. More. And
2: yeah. And more. And so we'll be back next week with more. And the rest of the month, it's going to get increasingly scary. Yep. Strap in. Oof. Hold all on right. to your pumpkins. <laughs> how can you resent jurassic park and and still make a riff off of hold on to your butts because hold on to
1: your butts is inherently funny and classic and i can appreciate funny moments from a script without necessarily loving the whole movie that i was bullied into watching as a grown-up human being (laughs) (laughs) thanks
2: everybody we love you goodbye goodbye (laughs) goodbye
0: Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archeological education and outreach.